0: So we're talking together about God's plans and our plans, about what God's plan for our life is and how we respond to that. I I, I think we like plans. Most of us do. I I know my wife does, uh, Wendy. That was yesterday morning. I was up early watching the Mexico-Brazil soccer final in the Olympics, and Wendy came staggering out of our bedroom, and after she'd had enough coffee, coffee to return the power of speech to her, she turned to me and said... So what's your plans for today? Um, Well, we all like to know the plans. We all like to know what's up. And, you know, the thing is, is that no matter how well we plan, no matter how well we have it nailed down, especially when it's our plan, it sometimes doesn't work out. I know if, if you follow Pastor John on Facebook, you saw this week while they were on vacation in Big Bear, he posted this cool picture of his minivan being hoisted on the back of a tow truck up at Big Bear. And I'm pretty sure that that was not part of the Rittenhouse's plans for their week. Um, In fact, John kind of, in a funny, cool way, cited uh, James 4.15, where James is warning you, hey, don't think that your plans are always going to work out. Don't be that guy that says, well, tomorrow I'm going to go here, or the next day I'm going to go here, because sometimes it doesn't work out. And that's, in fact, what happened. Now, I think the van did get fixed because there were later pictures of them doing fun things, not just sitting there like sad people at the uh, repair place. And and in fact, um, the kids are all here today, So and they said they didn't walk back. So I think the van's okay. But plans don't always work out. And And I think especially with minivans, there's something about minivans that they tend to go bad on you when you need them the most, especially when you're on trips? And, I, and I've been thinking about this this week. I think it's because we don't respect them on a day-to-day basis. Most of us, when we talk about minivans, especially if you're a man, you're not the proud driver of a minivan most of the time, you know? So, oh, yeah, I roll in a minivan. Now, I, 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 I got here in a minivan today. In fact, it's an Oldsmobile silhouette. If you ever saw the movie Get Shorty, they call it the old, the Cadillac of minivans. But... Still, most men don't take pride in rolling in a minivan, and I think it hurts the feelings of minivans. They hear that, and then when you really need them, when you're on a trip, it's like, ha, let's see who needs who now. And things like alternators or or, um, radiators or things, significant things go out. But they got that handled, they got it fixed, and the plan worked. So the challenge for us as God's people, a lot of times, it's not our plans, because we know they're going to go bad. But the thing I really want to talk about is what happens when God's plan doesn't go right in our lives, when what God wants to do doesn't work out? What happens when we have to switch to plan B? Now, the problem there is not with God's plan. I've walked with the Lord long enough that I am completely confident that, take for instance, God's plan for me, as it is for all of you, is that we become people who know how to love. Not the kind of automatic love that you have the first time you have ice cream or or the first time you see your child born, but the kind of real love that requires the work of the Spirit to accomplish in your life. That's something God wants to do in each of our lives. And I have no doubt about, seriously, no doubts about the Lord's desire to accomplish that in my life and yours. I have no doubts about the Lord's ability to accomplish that in my life and in yours. The only thing I do have doubts about is my ability to carry that out. And when that goes wrong, when God's plan for my life in that way, for me to be a more loving person, when when it goes wrong, it's, it's, it's on me. It's not on God. And so, today, we're going to talk about what it is that God does when we have to switch to plan B. That when what God wanted to accomplish, that there's a barrier here. Not because of God's desire, not because of God's ability, but because our unwillingness, our inability to do what God's called us to do. And so, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what does the Lord do when we don't want what He wants. What does the Lord do when our actions or inactions forces the Lord to go to plan B, when plan A is not going to work out for us? Now, to get there, I'm basically just going to tell you the story of something that happens in the book of Exodus. Because there's a remarkable thing that happens when God is forced to switch to plan B with the people of Israel. The place we're going to pick it up is in chapter 4. Now, what's happened up to this point, you, you might remember if you've read Exodus before, that the Israelites, God's people, sort of the main characters of the Old Testament, they are living as slaves in Egypt. And they've been there for hundreds of years, and they are now literally groaning under the oppressive slavery that the Egyptians have done to try to control them. And so the Israelites cry out to the Lord. And the end of chapter 1 tells us that the Lord hears their cries, he sees their suffering, and he decides to do something about it. Well, the first step is he calls a guy named Moses. Moses is an Israelite who had grown up in the house of Pharaoh through a remarkable circumstance, but who had failed in his initial attempt to save Israelites. He killed an Egyptian and then tried, who was beating up an Israelite, and then had tried to intervene with some Israelites, and the Israelites weren't having it. They basically said, Well, you know, who died and made you boss? And oh, by the way, the Egyptians know that. You killed that guy? And so Moses realizes this is a problem, and he beats it out of town. So when the Lord appears to him, it's many years later, and he tells Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let my people go. And I'm going to strike Pharaoh. I'm going to strike the Egyptians. But eventually, after all of that, I'm going to lead you, And the people out of this land and into a new land where you'll no longer be slaves, but you'll be my people in the land that I'm going to give you. And that's the plan. And if you remember the story, Moses is not having this. He is not at all confident that either that he can pull it off, nor if you look at the story carefully, Moses is not all that confident that the Lord can pull it off either. And so to give Moses a sign, both for the Israelites and for himself, he he points out to him, he says, well, what's in your hand? And Moses has this stick, he's a shepherd, he has a shepherd's stick in his hand, and the Lord says, well, throw it down. And the stick turns into a poisonous snake. Now, this freaks out Moses a little bit. But then the Lord freaks him out a little bit more and says, well, pick it up. Now, picking up a poisonous snake, not a good thing, but Moses does it. And as soon as he grabs the stick, it turns back, or the snake, it turns back into a stick. Now, this is an amazing sign. It shows the Lord has this kind of power. But interestingly, it's not just a coincidence that he picked a stick and turned it into a snake. If you've ever seen um, Egyptian iconography, like if you've ever seen those crowns that the pharaohs would wear, Um, you know, they look long like um, linen type of thing. And then on the headpiece, you might remember there's a cobra and then a shepherd's crook and a flail. Those were the symbols of the upper and lower kingdoms of Egypt. And so what the Lord is doing here with Moses and the Israelites is he's taking one of Pharaoh's symbols, the symbols of Pharaoh's power, and turning it into a symbol of the Lord's power. It's almost like a preview of what the Lord's going to do. And the Lord often does that in our lives. He will take things that are symbols of the things that have held us down and held us back up to this point, and with his power and transformation, turn those into symbols of the new thing that he's going to do in our lives. And so he does that with Moses and the Israelites. And so Moses and his brother Aaron, they travel from the desert and they show up in Egypt. And they, go, they gather the Israelites together and they tell them their story. That the Lord has appeared to us in the wilderness. And the Lord, the God of our ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord has told us that he's seen our situation and he is going to set us free. He's going to strike the Egyptians, he's going to lead us out of here, and we're going to have our own land. The Israelites, who have been groaning under Egyptian slavery, think, wow, this is a great idea, thank you so much, and at the end of chapter 4, it says, they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord. So, they're all in, this is great, let's go do this. So the next morning, Moses and Aaron do the next part of the plan, they have to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world, they show up and they tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Israelites, has told us to tell you to let my people go and to let them go out into the wilderness to worship him for a few days. Now they're really kind of scamming Pharaoh a little bit. They know that they're going to leave, but they're kind of letting Pharaoh down lightly at this point. And then something from their reaction to what happens something surprising happens for Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh says no. You know, they roll in there. and It's like, we're celebrities. The Israelites, they were with us. It was great. We told them the story. They were on it. We did this coolest thing with the stick and the snake, and the Israelites loved it. And they offer to do that with Pharaoh. In fact, they do it later on, and then Pharaoh has magicians that can do that, and he's unimpressed. Oh, stick, snake, I got people who can do that. It doesn't work. And so Pharaoh responds, and he says to them, I'm not going to let them go. And then he says a really key thing. He says, well, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? See, what we need to understand here, when Pharaoh is saying this, he's speaking as a political figure, you know? So he's the most powerful man in the world. So there's a good chance right now that if I tell you to jump on a plane and go to the White House and tell President Obama, hey, Bob Ramsey says you ought to do this or that, there's a pretty good chance that President Obama's response will be, who is Bob Ramsey, that I should listen to him. Who am I? I mean, there's a few people that listen to me, but I doubt that the president's one of them. Because he's the president, and I'm not. It's a power thing. But the other thing that's going on here that we need to remember for this story is that in the world of the Egyptians and the world of the Israelites, the Pharaoh is not just a king. He's not just a political figure. He is also a god. The Pharaoh, the Egyptians believed, and the Israelites living in their world believe this too at this point, that the king of Egypt was the earthly emanation of the highest of gods, um, usually the god Ra in the Egyptian pantheon. And so Pharaoh is not just the most powerful man on earth. He's the most powerful God in the heavens. And so when he says, who's the Lord that I should listen to him? He's saying, I don't deny that he's a God, but there's a lot of gods, and I'm at the top of the heap. The Lord's not anybody I need to listen to. Moses and Aaron don't anticipate this, and they get really freaked out by this. And so do the Israelites. But Pharaoh also gets freaked out by this, because he realizes that They're a little scared of the Israelites. There's a lot of them, and they had been allies of a previous enemy of the Egyptians. That's why they're being enslaved. And so Pharaoh realizes, this is a problem. I better do something more to control the Israelites. Now, he doesn't want to kill them, because we learn later on in the story, the Egyptians had become economically dependent on the slaves. So they couldn't just get rid of them. And so what they do is they realize, look, if these guys have time to listen to this Moses guy and demand sacrifices in the wilderness, they have way too much time on their hands. So we're going to make their work even harder. And we learned that what the Israelites have been doing is making bricks, something that a lot of you guys probably did. If you were a fourth grader in California and went through fourth grade, you might have made adobe bricks. Some of you guys do that? Got the mud, mixed it with the straw, put it in the thing. Yeah, a lot of us had a chance to do that. And that's what the Israelites were doing. Um, They were making essentially adobe bricks. And so what Pharaoh says to make it harder for them is up to this point, people had been supplying them with the straw that they needed to mix with the mud. So the Israelites were down by the edge of the Nile making the bricks. Somebody else was bringing them straw. And Pharaoh decreed, and got his taskmasters to carry this out that you have to make the same quota of bricks. They had to make the same amount and they had to go get their own straw. And the straw would have been miles away from the Nile. It's something that would grow in a drier climate. So this is really hard. I mean, basically, they have to double their workload and still make the same thing. Well, the Israelites were already groaning under the work that Pharaoh had given them. So this is a big problem. And the Egyptians' taskmasters that were over the Israelites, they're absolutely fierce in making sure this gets carried out. They don't say, well, you know, we're kind of sympathetic to you. The Egyptians are all over this. So the Israelites are in big trouble. And so once again, they cry out. But interestingly, they don't cry out to the Lord this time. Um, In chapter 5 of Exodus, if you're following along, Exodus is the second book in the Bible... Right before, after Genesis, right before um, Leviticus. And in chapter 5, it says the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. So the deal was Pharaoh would tell the Egyptian taskmasters what to do, and then there would be particular Israelites that were sort of supervisors of the work. They had to carry it out as well. So these guys go and they appeal, they cry out. But again, not to the Lord, but to Pharaoh. The, the word, the, the Hebrew word there, kara, is the same word that was used in chapter 1 when it talked about the Israelites cried out and the Lord heard their cry. This time the word is translated appealed here. They're doing the same thing, but notice this time they're not crying out to the Lord. They're crying out to Pharaoh. And this is a good example about how the Bible likes us, respects us, and thinks we're smart. There's something really important happening here, but it doesn't point it out to us. It counts on us to get it. So that's why I'm slowing down here. So that word that they cry out, they kara to the Lord. That's something you do very seriously. You don't kara over spilled milk. You kara when something significant is happening. It shows up a lot in the Psalms when people are crying out to the Lord. It's a, it's a word that has religious context. You don't do that to a person. You do that to your God. So they cry out. They appeal not to the Lord but to Pharaoh. And look at what they say. They, they say to him, um, Where to go? Ah, sorry. They said, "Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told you to make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people." Do you notice the way it repeats that term? Your servants, your servants, your servants. It Says that three times. The Bible likes threes. That word servant is really loaded as well. Now, they are servants. They're slaves. But you might, if you've had a chance to read the Bible some more, you know that metaphorically that word servant or slave is used a lot in the Psalms. It's used a lot in worship. And so when you're relating to a God, the worshipers of a particular God are often called that God's servants, that God's slaves, that God's evadimed. And so they say not once, not twice, but three times to Pharaoh, who right now they're talking to not as a king but as a god because they're crying out to him, a religious term, that we are your servants, we are your servants, we are your servants. They're not talking to him as disgruntled workers. They're talking to him as a people who are crying out to their god. And the final phrase, it gets a little garbled here in the NIV, but it, it says essentially it breaks the pattern of your servants, your servants, your servants. And it's why are you doing this? to your people, to your people. So what are they saying? We are done being the Lord's people. We are done being Israelites. We are good, faithful Egyptians. Why are you doing this to us, Lord Pharaoh? Why our God, Pharaoh? Why are you doing this? This, friends, is definitely a plan B situation. This is not working out the way they wanted it. The Lord has told his people through Moses what he wants to do, and his people are saying, you know what? As soon as it got rough and hit the rocks, no thanks. We don't want to just stay in Egypt. We want to be Egyptians. This is a big problem for the plan that God has. Moreover, when they're done, Pharaoh just says, you're lazy. Get out of here. Go get back to work. And as they're leaving, they see Moses and Aaron, and they let Moses have it. They, they tell Moses, um, they, it says, they meet Moses and Aaron waiting for them. This is verse 20. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh. And his officials have put us a, a sword in their hand to kill us. Stench to Pharaoh. That's, in Hebrew, that's about the strongest thing that you can say. They are really, really unhappy with Moses in there, You have screwed us up. This is bad. You shouldn't have done this to us. Get out of here. Now, it doesn't quite make sense what they're saying, but I don't know if you've noticed or not, but when people are really mad, they don't feel all that obligated to make sense sometimes. And what the Israelites are doing here is very characteristic of that. Now, what we don't get in the story here is Moses' response. We don't get what Moses says back to them. But this is another example of the great storytelling we find in the Bible. We find out what Moses is thinking in the next little interchange. Where Moses turns not to Pharaoh and not to the Israelites, but he turns to the Lord. And look at what Moses says here. Look at what Moses says. He returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people. And you've not rescued your people at all. Now, I, I tried to raise my voice a little bit because Moses is just furious here. And sometimes we miss that in the Bible, you know, that we're used to, I think in our head, the Bible's all, often in this kind of plummy voice, you know, oh, Lord. Why have you brought trouble upon your people? You know, we we tend to think it in that. Moses is just furious here. And if you look at the words, do you notice that the Israelites are no longer my people? They're this people. They're no longer our people. They're your people, Lord. He's handing them off. He's done. This is Moses' resignation speech. And he goes all the way back to where he was at the burning bush. Where, you know, look, I knew this was a bad idea. But what Moses is saying here, to just kind of make this a bit more pointed, is, you know, when he says, why do these people have so much trouble? You know, that you've been nothing but trouble for these people since they got here? To put a pretty clear point on it, what Moses is saying to the Lord is, you're not a good God. You're a bad God. You're hurting these people. And And then he he talks about, you know, essentially, why did you send me? I told you at the burning bush you were wrong. I tried multiple times to tell you this was a bad idea. And circumstances have shown, you know what? You're right. It is a bad idea. It was a bad idea to send me. I'm not having this anymore. And then the final thing, he says, is that you have done nothing to rescue your people. He's saying basically... You're not strong enough to do anything about it. Pharaoh's the boss here. You're not. So what Moses has just done is he's just told the Lord. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, you know the Lord is not just some character along the way, but the maker and creator of the universe. I mean, we've, most of us have read to the end of Exodus. Moses hasn't yet. But he's just told the maker and creator of the world that he is bad, that he was wrong, and he was weak. And Moses is done. He's gone. He's out. And this is his kiss-off speech. You can't fire me, I quit. He's gone. And then, this was a place where the people that divided the Bible up into chapters did a great job. Because this is a cliffhanger. You know, if you were doing this as a film, this would be a great time to break for a commercial. What's going to happen? When we come back from commercial, will Moses still be there? Will Moses be uh, smoking, burning hole where he once stood? After what he's just said to the Lord? Will the Lord stick with Moses? Will the Lord stick with Israel? It's a bit of a cliffhanger. Clearly, we're in plan B territory now. Plan A Moses goes, the Israelites listen, they talk to Pharaoh, they get out of there. That's not happening. And so it's time to switch to plan B. And so, what's it going to be? How's the Lord going to respond? Now, think about this in your own situation where you've had some responsibility for something and the person's, people that you had responsibility for turned out that they weren't quite up to the job, that you know, maybe you overestimated them, maybe you made the job too hard, but when it's time to go to plan B, you do one of two things. You either get somebody else to do it, or if you're going to stick with the people that weren't quite up to it the first time, you usually dial it back. And so plan B is not quite as rigorous, not quite as extensive, not quite as hard as plan A. And, and if you want to think about it, that's, that's even kind of a gracious thing to do for people. You know, that oh maybe I overestimated this, maybe it's my fault that you weren't quite able to do it, so let's dial this back a little bit. My guess is a lot of us have been on both sides of that at some point or another. But here's what I, what I want to show you that's really amazing is that the Lord is clearly in a plan B situation. And so, what do we find out? And if you're following along on the out insert that was in your, in your worship folder, this is that first thing on the, on the outline. And that's simply that. You know, What do we find out? What the Lord's plan B is? When we look, when the Lord has to shift to plan B, what we discover is that the Lord's plan B is that he sticks with plan A. That when we've failed, that when we're not up to what the God, what God has called us to do, when it's clearly we're not able to do it, at least right now, when the Lord has to go to plan B, plan B, we find out that the Lord's Plan B for us is Plan A. That the Lord just sticks with Plan A, and He keeps sticking with it. That's what the Lord does. He doesn't tell Moses, "Look, you can't talk to me like this. I'm God. You're not." He doesn't say, all right, all right, all right, we'll dial it back a little bit. He just goes back to the story. If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, the Lord's response, he says, look, you'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he'll let them go. Um, that's, a pharon- that's one of Pharaoh's slogans, the mighty hand of Pharaoh. The Lord's kind of trash-talking here a little bit. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country And then he goes back to the start. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I kept my promises to them. I will keep my promises to you. And then he just tells them the story, he tells them the plan one more time. I find this to be tremendously good news. Tremendously good news. You know, I've lived long enough and lived in the same house long enough. That just walking from room to room, I'm reminded of things in my life that didn't work out the way I thought they were going to work out. You know, book, a book that represented some new direction or a shirt that I thought was going to fit and didn't. And, you know, all, all those things that happen in your life that represent, that point out to you that you're stuck on plan B. You're not on the initial plan. But when it comes to the things that God wants to accomplish in our life, and we're not up to it initially, when we fail the first time around, when God has to switch to plan B, he switches to plan B by sticking with plan A. And he just keeps working, and he keeps working, and he keeps working. And again, I think this is amazingly good news. Because we just intuitively know, man, I messed up. I can't expect as much. I have to lower my expectations. It's just not going to work out the way that I thought it was going to. But in the things that God has called you to, in the life that he wants to give you, God is always leading us back to his best plan, to plan A. There is no B. There is no C. There is no D. There's only plan A, and the Lord sticks with that. And again, I think that's tremendously good news. But it's not easy to get there. And so there's a couple of things I want to just point out. There's things that we need to know about ourselves and things that we need to know about God and his plan that will help us get there and live in the power of the fact that God wants to, wants to take us into plan A. Um, and these are the next points on your outline. In fact, I'm actually going slightly in a different order. Um, and I want to look at the second thing, the second point here. And, and it comes out of the text. It's, it's interesting that In chapter 6 in Exodus, the Lord tells Moses the whole story. And then we're told that Moses goes and tells this to the Israelites. And sadly, the Israelites' response is not, Really? That's awesome. Let's go do it. But instead, sadly, but in a very real way that I think you'll recognize from your own life, it says in verse 9 that Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. That because of their experience of having been slaves their entire lives, and their discouragement of having had their hopes raised only to have them dashed, at that point, even though what Moses was telling them was tremendously good news, they couldn't hear it. They couldn't see the future that God had for them. And... That's the next point on your outline, is the fact that our sins and our hurts really do matter. You know, it it talks in one of the epistles about that these things are light and momentary, and that's true compared to the weight of the gospel. But we need to be real about the fact that the things that have been done to us and the things that we've done to ourselves, those things matter. And those things, if we're being honest with ourselves, make it harder to hear what the Lord is trying to say they make it harder to see where the Lord is trying to lead us. That when the Lord is pointing us to the preferred future that he has for all of us, our hurts and our sins, the things that have been done to us and we've done to ourselves, those often stand in the way and make it very difficult for us to see where the Lord is leading us to go. And I've, I've often been very thankful that Exodus, the voice of the narrator there, just kind of takes us away from the story to just tell us, you you need to give these people a break. They're in a very hard place. And what the Lord is asking them to do is not easy. And what the Lord is asking you to do is not easy. He's not ignoring the, the hurts and sins that have been part of your life. And the Lord is fully aware of the fact that those things make it hard to take the next step forward. The other thing that makes it hard is a matter of vision and knowledge And that is simply, and this is the other point, is that what the Lord is calling each of us to do, um, it's hard to do what you've never done before. And what the Lord is calling the Israelites to do is something that is completely out of their experience. Every one of the people of Israel that they're talking to have lived their entire lives as slaves. Their parents were slaves. Their grandparents were slaves. This is all that they've ever experienced. And what the Lord is calling them to do is to be not Pharaoh's people, but the Lord's people, not slaves in Egypt, but free people in their own land. They have no experience with this. They have no idea what that is. And whenever God is doing a new thing and a good thing in your life, in my life, in your life, he's always calling us to do something and be someone that we've never been before. The Lord is at work in each of our lives to make each of us more and more like Christ, more and more into the women and men that he created us to be. But if that's going to happen, if it happens at the end of today, if it happens by Friday or the end of the month or the end of the year, you're going to be someone that you have never been before. Now, that's good news, but that's not easy to do. It's hard to go someplace you've never been before. It's hard to eat foods you've never eaten before. It's hard to think thoughts and behaviors that you've never done before. But God's blessing is always out in the future like that. That when the Lord wants to be at, our, at work in our lives, it's never backwards. It's never going back. It's always going forward. And so to give the Israelites a break in the story and honestly to give ourselves a break, it's important to remember both of those things. That, you know, the, the, the hard stuff that you've experienced or that you've brought on yourself, it's real. It's real. And just because you change your mind and decide to start listening to the Lord doesn't make it disappear in a day. And that when the Lord calls you to the new life that we have in Christ, it's joyous, it's great, but it's unfamiliar. And it's hard to be someone that you've never been before. But here's why, here's how we get to it. And these are the final two things we just want to highlight today. How do we get there? Well, we listen to what the Lord is doing. We need to know the new story that we have in Christ. The Israelites, what they knew was that Pharaoh was the most important and powerful person in the world and that they were slaves and that their one attempt to get out of that had just failed. That was their story. And notice what the Lord does. He doesn't berate them, but he just tells them the story again. That your life is not defined by being slaves, that your story of who you are is not who you've been, but it's what the Lord is going to do. And that redefinition, that learning a new story for our lives, that learning that the old story, that when I do this, I always fail, when these things that have happened to me are the heaviest loads of my life, and we begin to exchange them for the fact that God does have a plan for our lives. That we are his treasured possessions. That he wants us to be his holy nation. A kingdom of priests. That God can do whatever he wants and choose whatever he wants and he's chosen us. That it's knowing that that is now your story. Not the accumulation of your failures. Not the accumulation of the things that have been done to you. Not the stuff about your life that you wish were different. But what God is going to do in the future. As you begin to know that that is your story that you're not a failure, you're not a victim, but that you are a son or daughter of the king, that you are his treasured possession, and that God is going to use you to do amazing things. As that becomes your story, we are much more able to step into plan A. And the final thing that we need to know is that the Lord does not do this reluctantly. The Lord doesn't do this because he has to. You know, it's like, wow, you know, I wish Bob and these people were more on track. I wish I could just talk to them and they'd get it, but they don't. So I got to be gracious. I got to be merciful. I got to stick with them because they're the only people I have. We need to understand that when we mess up and require plan B to kick in, which in God's case is plan A, God doesn't do that reluctantly. He doesn't do that begrudgingly. He doesn't do that with any kind of resentment. That when the Lord needs to show mercy and understanding and grace to us, the Lord is doing something that he likes to do. That when we step into plan A, not on our own strength and our own abilities, but on the basis of God's grace and God's mercy, we are helping the Lord do exactly what he likes to do. There's a great passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is right in the middle of your Bible. Um, In chapter 30, verse 18. The first part of, of chapter 30 is not very nice. It's tough stuff. It's the Lord speaking through the prophet, telling the people of Israel just how badly they had messed up. And you see that a lot in the prophets. But the way that they had messed up is not the final story. The way that they had taken plan A and just trampled all over it is not the end of the passage. That what the Lord says to the prophet here, at the, verse 18, at the end of the section, he says, okay, all of this about yourselves is true. The problems that you have in your life are really your, your problems. You've created them. But that's not the final word. That's not the end of the story. Here's where the story really ends. He says this in verse 18. He says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and he rises to show you compassion. That the most important thing you need to know about the Lord here is not that you've messed up or not how unhappy the Lord is, but that the Lord looks forward to opportunities to be gracious and compassionate to his people. Um, The two verbs here, this is the only time those two verbs ever appear together in the Bible. It's, It's a phrase that was meant to be really memorable. And so friends, remember this today. That when the Lord is gracious to us, it's not because he has to. It's not because our errors and mistakes and hurts require him to. That when the Lord is gracious to us, it's because he wants to be. He likes to be. It's who he was meant to be. That anytime the Lord is gracious to us, it's he is doing the very thing that, as the passage says here, he longs to do. And so as you you look at that, of of wanting to move into the Lord's plan A, knowing you've put yourself in a plan B situation, and you're going to need the Lord's graciousness, and you're going to need his compassion to get there, do you realize at some level you're actually doing God a favor by letting him do that? Because the Lord wants, the Lord longs to be gracious to us. He rises. He gets up every morning. God doesn't sleep. It's a metaphor. The Lord gets out of bed to show compassion to his people. To show compassion to the Israelites. To show compassion to me. To show compassion to you. So what do we do when we've messed up? When we've put God in a plan B situation? How does God respond when we say no thanks to the great thing we want, he wants to do in our lives? What does God do next? He sticks with plan A. And that's what God wants to accomplish in each of our lives. The hurts we've had, the failures we've had, those are real. But what is even more real is the fact that the Lord desires to be compassionate and gracious in our lives and to draw us into that plan so that for us to be his treasured possession, a holy people, a kingdom of priests, for us to live the life that he's called us to do.